Plymouth, January 30th, 1775. Sin. The very polite introduction to yours of February, of January the 3rd, uh, bold outsider, not only as a compliment far beyond any merit I can pressure to uh, Glenn, but as resulting in some measure from the partial bias which even leads us to view through the most favorable medium whatever regards those we consider in the light of friendship. But when assured that I think myself both honored and obliged whenever Mr. Adams takes up the pen to favor me with a live uh, with a letter, I hope he will again attempt to grasp it hard enough to gratify me further in the same way. More especially, as I am about to which to write a statistical query to his decision in which judgment I place great confidence both from the ability and rectitude of mind which guide its determination. Personal reflections and sarcastic reproaches have generally been decried by the wise and worthy both in their governance and writing. And though a man may be greatly criminal in his conduct towards society in which he lives, how, for, how far sin do you think it's justifiable for any individual to hold him up the object of public derision? It is, and it is consistent with the benevolent system of Christianity to vilify the delinquent when only wished to ward off the, to the fatal consequences of his crimes. But through the particular circumstances of our whoppy times, a little personal acrimony might be justifiable in your case. Must not the female character suffer, and will she not be suspect a deficient in the most amiable part through that candor and charity which ensures her both affection and esteem if she indulges her plea to partake in the darkest shades even though whose vice and venality have rendered contemptible your undistinguished sentiments on those points will greatly oblige a person who is sometimes doubtful whether the solicitations of a beloved friend may not lead her to indulge a satirical propensity may ought to be ruined in with the utmost care and attention but such are the multiplied in the injuries that the community receives from a gut of unfeeling, unprincipled hirelings, such as the discord sown by their wicked machinations, and such the animosity of parties, that may we not all with some reason apply to ourselves what a noble author has put in the mouth of the celebrated Pope. When meeting the admirable Beaulieu in the Elysian shades, that neither of them could boast that either their leisure or their praise was always free from partiality, and that their pews were after drawn against those with which it was more shameful 
to portend than honorable to vanquish. I know not what may be your opinion of a late composition, but as it were readily weared with light and by a gentleman of your discernment offered to the public eye, you cannot wonder if I presume you thought it might in some small degree be beneficial to society. If so, the author must be highly gratified and will be ever better pleased with picking some useful flower from the foot of Parnassus, though if she were able to ascend the utmost height and gather the laurel or the garland from its summit, when the glowing beauties have no tendency either to correct the manner of others or to import a virtue of her own heart. Your baptism or countenance, your appropriation or censure may in some particulars serve to regulate my future conduct. In your last to Mr. Warren, you seem to be quite wary of a state of useless. It, it is painful. It is vexatious. How many years have the hopes of protect of government of boot-testing parties been alternatively rising or winking in the weight of a feather, and yet little prospect of a period to their embarrassment. How much longer do you think that political scale from Hague will hang in equilibrium? Will not justice and freedom soon preponderate till the part partigus of corruption and veniality, even backed with the weight of ministerial power, shall be made to kick the bow. You will not think it strange that the timidity and tenderness of a woman should lead her to be anxious for the consequences of every unimportant step and every and very solicitous for the tem- termination of those disputes which interrupt almost every social enjoyment and threaten to spread ruin and desolation over the fairest posterities. over the fairest possessions. But if you if you will largely excuse excuse this interruption, I will no longer ball of your attention from more meritous affairs. Yet let me add my fervent wishes that you and the other gentlemen of ensuing her courageness, courageness may be endowed with wisdom and resolution equal to the difficulties of the day. And if you attempt to repair the shattered ostication constitution or to erect a new one, may it be constructed with such symmetry of features, such vigor of nerves, and such strength of view that it may never be in the power of ambition or tyranny to shake the durable fa- fabric. For the meantime, for the meantime, I hope all necessary attention will be paid to the personal safety of the worthy guardians of our freedom and happiness, which leads my trembling heart to wish my friend were a, of a further remove from the Cambridge from the headquarters of vindictive enemies. I am sin. With great esteem, your real friend and humble servant, M. Warren. Postscript. At the dawn of the American Revolution, many patriot pamphleteers and polemicists wrote under a pseudonym. It was the safest choice when the outcome of ongoing rebellion was uncertain. 
Yet for this week's author, Mercy Otis Warren, pseudonymity offered one more benefit, power and credibility she lacked under her own name. Warren was born to the politically active Otis clan, which first arrived in the New World on the Mayflower. Her father had been a political rival to colonial governor Thomas Hutchinson, losing out on a, losing out on a judgeship to him. Her brother James was one of the loudest opponents of abuses by the crown, coining the famous phrase, taxation without representation is tyranny, before a violent encounter with a tax collector drove him to madness. When Warren took up the pen, she had two goals, to avenge her father and continue her brother's fight against tyranny. Her early publications reflect these goals. In 1772, she published a satirical play, The Audulator, which took aim at Hutchinson, renamed Rapatio, and predicted the revolution was inevitable. After the play was published, many in the colony took to referring to Hutchinson by his character's name. In 1773, she published another anti-Hutchinson play, The Defeat, and in early 1774, she published a satirical poem in the Boston Gazette, celebrating December's Boston Tea Party, and further skewing the governor. Her anti-Hutchinson campaign contributed to his eventual recall. Years later, in a final act of vengeance, Warren and her husband would purchase one of Hutchinson's homes seized as loyalist property. Yet, by the time of this week's letter, as she prepares to publish another farcical play, The Group, Hutchinson began to question whether her satires and polemics were moral, just, or becoming of her sex. In this week's letter, a conflicted Warren seeks guidance from her friend and ally, John Adams, one of the few people fully aware of the work she was doing in secret. Adams's response was quick and unequivocal. Adams, a lawyer, wrote to Warren that it is really a dread of satyr that restrains our species from exorbitances more than laws, human, moral, or divine. He went on to praise her genius with a pen and urged her to continue writing for the good of all. Warren listened, employing her quick and biting wit to produce plays, poems, and pamphlets in support of the patriot cause. Even after a peace was restored, she continued her work, authoring a popular pamphlet under the pseudonym A Columbian Patriot, demanding that the proposed Constitution include a Bill of Rights. In the pamphlet, she noted with particular concern that there is no security in the proffered system either for the rights of conscience or the liberty of the press. In 1790, after the ratification of the Bill of Rights, Warren finally felt comfortable writing under her own name. She published a collection of her writings, then a lengthy history of the American Revolution, titled The History of the Rise, Progress, and Termination of the American Revolution. This work, published in 1805, shattered the amity between Adams and Warren. Outraged at his portrayal, the former president sent Warren a stream of skating letters taking issue with various parts of the book. In one, he pleaded, Madam, in the name of justice, truth, friendship, and honor, I demand of you to show me when, and when, where, and how I have relinquished the Republican system and what principle of the American Revolution I have forgotten. Late in her life, Warren reconciled with Adams, and in the summer of 1814, she turned to him for help dispelling some rumors that the group had in truth been written by a man. Despite their spat, Adams wrote swiftly to set the record straight. But one person in the world, male or female, could at that time, in my opinion, have written it. And that person was Madame Mercy Warren, the historical, philosophical, poetical, and satirical consort of the then Colonel, since General, James Warren of Plymouth, sister of the great but forgotten James Otis. <laughs>